Hello, and welcome to another episode of the AESA Graduate Coalition Podcast. I think we are technically up to episode 11. This episode is another special preview in preparation of the annual meeting that runs October 30th through November 3rd in Baltimore. I am your host, Tim Moriak, a PhD candidate in social foundations at the University of South Carolina. And today, I am joined by Dr. Bonnie Waslin, Assistant Professor at Penn State Abington, and Dr. Tommy Edner, Assistant Professor at Rhode Island College. Prior to their current positions, both served as postdoctoral fellows at the College of Education at Loyola University, Maryland. They share with us their perspectives about living and teaching in Baltimore so that participants have a better context for the annual meeting, which of course is just a few weeks away. They talk through the school system, local organizing, and places you might sneak out if you have some time. They also share tips on navigating the meeting if you are a grad student, especially a first-time attendee. It is my hope that once again their thoughts will help all people feel welcomed and ready for the meeting. Further, and once again, I really encourage all graduate students, especially if you're not sure about going, to try and make it. The annual meeting has, and I think will continue to be, a very important part of my scholarly development. If you haven't listened to the specific Graduate Coalition preview, please give last episode a listen. A final reminder, the conference theme is El Pueblo Unido a Más Vencido, Critical Community Building for Social Justice in Divisive Times. I hope to see you all there. Research Fellowship at Loyola, Maryland, and I'm currently at Penn State University uh, Abington, which is just outside of Philly. And my work looks at questions of equity and access uh, for marginalized student populations through qualitative research methods. Specifically, I look at uh, students of color and LGBTQ plus students. And uh, qualitative, my, the qualitative methodologies that I predominantly use uh, are ethnographic methods, particularly focusing towards the sonic. Hi, I'm Tommy Ender. Just like Bonnie, I was at Loyola University of Maryland doing a postdoc, and now I am a joint appointment in the School of Education and History Department at Rhode Island College. And I do work around community-based narratives in the social studies. Social studies is sort of the discipline that I focus on, but also looking at how music can serve as both history and narratives of activism. And recently I've started working on a manuscript that looks at how baseball perpetuates dominant narratives among uh, narratives when it comes to U.S. history. So those are the areas that I work in, and I've been attending ASA conferences since Toronto, which I believe was 2014, 15 maybe. So yeah, that's Sometimes along, along those lines. I've been, I've been going to the conference for a number of years and I'm more than happy to share out my thoughts about ASA in Baltimore. Great. Um, so given uh, both your experiences living and, and working in Baltimore um, and, and just the general meeting theme, 
uh, of critical community building for social justice. Uh, what are some important things? I know this question is super broad, but what are some important things we should know about going into Baltimore? When it comes to, to Baltimore, one of the things that I was very particular aware of, given my training and my background, is just learning about the history of Baltimore and learning about the way the city itself was constructed socially from, from, from the start on. And I think uh, I'll go into more detail in a little bit, but I think it's very important that folks who are coming to Baltimore for the first time or haven't been to Baltimore in a long time need to, need to refresh on what the history of Baltimore is like. And also to remember that Baltimore is a city of neighborhoods, uh, and that's what they say about it. And understanding that that means that neighborhoods change quickly, meaning that historically uh, a neighborhood may have been represented one way that is now not represented in the same way. So, you know, what Dr. Ender is saying about refreshing your memory and your understanding of the city becomes really important, but also understanding the, the fact that the city does work as well. Uh, individual neighborhoods in lots of ways becomes an important understanding about the city itself. Talking about those neighborhoods and those histories, uh, what what might be some of the, the political, educational, social context that we should have in the back of our mind as we go or as we are going into um, a, a very particular part of Baltimore that is is going to be much different in my understanding of the rest of the city. Yeah. Well, I, I can tell you, prior to arriving in Baltimore, my, my context of Baltimore was revolved around two shows, Homicide, which I remember watching growing up as a kid, and then The Wire, when I was in, uh, just after college. And it was interesting to, to see how Baltimore was portrayed within those two shows, but then when you compared it to media coverage, especially around um, the uprisings that took place in 2015, you saw this sort of this juxtaposition of what is Baltimore, who lives in Baltimore, and what are folks living in Baltimore saying. So for me coming in and looking back on it at this juncture of my life and career, I realized that I heard very distinct messages that I had to take a number of months to just figure out, okay, what's what's being said actually in Baltimore, like like Dr. Walzak said, what are what are some of the neighborhoods that were profiled the wire? What are they saying today? Or if you go into downtown or the inner harbor, which is this very sanitary, clean, tourist friendly space, what does that say about Baltimore? And I think I think I, I still wrestle with that whenever I go back and, and for folks who are coming in, I think you have to understand where the history of redlining and, and the consistent segregation that exists among racial and class lines. Right, and also to remember that the Inner Harbor has been so radically gentrified. Uh, if you think about the Inner Harbor, how it used to function with some of the plants that were there that have been moved actually outside the city limits, um, and what that does economically when when job opportunities are lost and moved and then the area is gentrified, and how that uh, sort of continues the, the racial and class divide that Dr. Ender is talking about, I think becomes really crucial to remember as well. But also to remember that the schools uh, in Baltimore um, are underfunded. Uh, I think there's something in the Baltimore Sun really recently uh, saying that the per pupil spending was something like the fourth or fifth highest uh, in the nation. Um, and numbers are always, uh, you know, difficult to gauge as to what this the situation is. But to remember that 
the schools are still really suffering from questions of um, funding um, in the city, but also to, to remember that Baltimore um, operates a little bit differently in the fact that there are charter schools that are still a part of the uh, public school system in a way, right? So part of their funding comes from there as well. And so the relationship to charter schools is a little bit different in Baltimore. So when you're asking about the political and um, educational landscape, it's a little different than, than how charter schools might function in other spaces. And so understanding that in its relationship to the underfunding of uh, schools in Baltimore becomes really significant as well. Would you mind expanding on that just a little bit, Dr. Wozlick? Yeah, so uh, there are plenty of places where charter schools are funded um, separately. Uh, this is different in the fact that the, the teachers, so I actually did some research in a charter school in, uh, while I was at, in Baltimore. Um, and so the teachers are a part of the Baltimore City School District. Uh, their pay is coming from there, their benefits, their union, not either unionized. Uh, but then the school itself gets less funding from the, the district because it's a charter school. It doesn't have um, buffing, things like that. And so then that excess amount of money is made up by the companies who are supporting that school or the organizations that are supporting that school. And so uh, it the school is then still taking money from the district. Um, and then there's a, there are a lot of schools in the city that to get into them, there's an application process. And that's from, I believe, middle school on. I don't know about the elementary um, landscape specifically because of the population I was working with. There are a lot of, um, you know, the application season is really big for these kids to be able to get into a school and then stay in a school um, so that they're not going to their neighborhood schools. So a lot of the neighborhood schools have closed um, in over the last decade or so. And so there's, you know, those considerations are become really important to what do those neighborhoods look like? What is the funding? Um, where does the funding go from those neighborhoods and things like that? So Baltimore, like many places, has mismanagement of funds, as Dr. Ender was saying, but it particularly hits school systems in, in a different way here in the city. I was going to mention how I have former students of mine who are now actual teachers, elementary and middle grades levels in Baltimore City, and I know for a fact that they have had to resort to using different crowdsourcing uh, apps and programs in order to raise money for their classes. And when I talk about raising money, I'm talking about getting chairs or buying supplies for the students or things that in other places we may take for granted. And when I've asked them about that, I can think of three students off the top of my head. They said, oh, no, what we've heard is that there is no money in the budget, so we have to figure it out. So they have to do more with less. And in, in those three students' cases, former students' cases, they are literally working with nothing. And and it, it, it's, it's interesting to see how... From, from their experiences being at the university level as student teachers to now being fully immersed, how their perspectives have greatly shifted where they now have to learn about budget lines and have to talk about ways to draw in more funding so that their students can actually participate in the discussions they're trying to have in their classes. As you kind of just hinted at, both of you, like teachers are doing great things, amazing things with lack of resources. What are some other community strengths or, or community um, just just positive notes that are coming out of Baltimore um, right now that you might want to highlight? 
Well, I will say that Baltimore is known for its music scene, which is amazing. So if you were to come into town, I think it's worth taking a moment to check out who's performing. Uh, one of the things that I absolutely loved in my time in Baltimore was that you could go see a show for reasonable a reasonable ticket cost. Um, people would be coming through Baltimore to go to, to D.C. or to New York. And because they were Baltimore natives, uh, in some of the cases, they were not... Uh, charging what, what I thought that I'd have to be paying to see that particular musician. Um, and so the music is, is certainly worth checking out. There's also a lot of great opportunities with the arts, plural, to uh, sort of be able to see in Baltimore. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I know having gone out a couple of times to places like um, Auto Bar and uh, oh, Creative Alliance, that's what it is. Um, especially Creative Alliance where they have a lot of independent artists, music artists, sculpture uh, artists uh, who work with different mediums, they, they have this space where they can go in and engage with different community members. And for me, that was my greatest takeaway from, from learning from those communities, just how important music and art were to the city of Baltimore and how it provided folks who grew up in Baltimore and, and could speak to their life experiences living in a city like Baltimore, those outlets to, to instruct others like myself who was, a, who was new to the area, hey, this is what's going on in Baltimore, this is what we want to do, et cetera. Yeah, Keystone Corner on top of um, what Dr. Ender is saying is a great place to be able to check out some music. Great. Is there any other um, things that you might check out if, you know, we were or, or any other students or, or, or conference attendees were able to sneak away the conference, uh, hidden gems or just fun things that maybe don't, you know, don't get brought up usually? But you're in the Inner Harbor, so you're within walking distance of some um, some things within the Inner Harbor if you don't have transportation. Um, the National Aquarium is there. It's expensive because it's an aquarium. <laughs> um, but that's going to be fairly close to the hotel. Uh, I'm trying to think of Tommy and some other things that are actually in that harbor area that they could just walk right to. You have the usual tourist traps, like, uh, was it Ripley's, believe it or not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, if you were feeling really adventurous, I, I would suggest that you walk or take some sort of rideshare away from the Inner Harbor and visit a place like mm -hmm. Jimmy's Seafood House or some of the uh, restaurants along Charles Street when you get close to the University of Baltimore area, Penn Station area. And then there's some other places where if you really want to be adventurous and go north out of the city into the county, there's some really good hidden gems where along Falls Road uh, where you can eat and go, you know, do different things, a couple art galleries and spaces like that up that way. But knowing knowing that a lot of the action will be concentrated in the inner, inner harbor, I, I feel it would be sort of difficult to venture outside that geographic area. Right. Um, also, I would highly recommend to people um, to go see the Black uh, in Wax Museum. That's an excellent uh, um, kind of place to, to visit. It's not uh, necessarily, I think, the, some, of the, some of the exhibits are, are certainly not for young children. So if you're traveling with your children, that might not be the best idea, but it's an excellent museum. The Walters Art Museum is another strong one, the original F. Lewis Museum. Um, the Baltimore Museum of Art. These are free places that you can go and check out some uh, great art scenes as well. And then there's 
just a lot of really great places. Ida B's is a great place to dine as well. Um, there are a lot of places that, that are worth um, just even kind of Googling and seeing what's up. The, the Jewish Museum of Maryland is, is also a strong one. Um, there are a lot of places that you might want to check out if you can get some rides away from the Air Harbor. Right. Well, one place that I just thought of right now actually is Red Emma's uh, bookstore. It's a, a community-based, community-run bookstore that I know mm-hmm. they just switched locations, but it's a great place where if you catch it on a, a certain evening, you'll hear community organizers out there engaging with other members in the community. And I know, having gone there a couple of times, I, I walked away with some really good pieces of information about what was happening in Baltimore. Yeah, and they have national and local activists that are there. It's, I think it's worth a, play, a time just if you can get to Red Emma's just to go and, and hang out. Um, because if you are interested in activist work, a lot of people just go there to have a cup of coffee. Great. That's those are those are fantastic suggestions. Uh, just kind of in closing, or just to it, for the last part of our conversation, um, what what general advice would you have for grad students who who might be either coming to ASA for the first time, maybe even their first conference, or just how do you navigate? Even though it is a smaller conference, how how do you navigate um, the space and, and make it authentic and real and and, and worthwhile? Regardless of the conference you're at, I think one major takeaway is just learning from others and engaging in those conversations. I know it's really easy for having been a grad student where I want to meet certain individuals or, or say, hey, I read your piece on, in this journal or I read this chapter in this edited book. But I think it's uh, for Learning from experience, honestly, I think what happened was just for those organic conversations that have that take place in the hallways outside mm-hmm. the presentation areas were for me very fruitful because that's where those future collaborations and the ideas that I'm now working on really came to, to existence from those conversations. So I, I think if, if you're if you're willing to engage in, in conversation and and have those conversations with folks or say, hey, hey uh, Dr. Wozlik, can, can we meet up for coffee at uh, XYZ Cafe you know, tomorrow for 15 minutes? I just want to learn about what you did with your sandwiches piece. You know, folks are like, yeah, 15 minutes, that works, blah, blah, blah. But I think just a willingness to network um, and, and just converse with others. Well, you know, I think um, Dr. Anders is right on about that. ASA is a space, uh, unlike a lot of conferences, where we have built in time for people to be able to gather and talk. There are a lot of um, social hours in the evenings that I think are worth your time to attend because that gives uh, new conference goers a time to, to sit and catch people's attention and have a conversation where some conferences it's sort of a race to catch people before they're out the door for lunch or out the door with their friends uh, or people that they know for dinner. Uh, and so I think it's worth that as well. I think if there's somebody whose work you're particularly interested in, it is worth giving them an email in advance. Hey, I'm coming to ASA. I would like 15 minutes of your time, uh, you know, to talk about your work or to talk about some ideas. A lot of the scholars who attend AESA are incredibly accessible uh, to grad students, to newer scholars. 
And I think that that's a really important cultural uh, piece to what is inherently AESA as an organization. And so I think it's completely worth your time to seek those people out, um, although it might feel a little bit intimidating, um, just to actually seek them out and have the time, to have some time with them. Um, I think that's completely, you know, uh, worth it to make it to maximize your conference experience. Yeah, I, I can tell you, just to echo what Dr. Wozniak said, my first ESA conference was in Toronto, and, you know, being a new grad student and being green and not really knowing the landscape, I somehow fell in with a group of folks, similar years, similar levels, and we ended up doing a, a pub crawl through Toronto, just sort of the spur of the moment, and a lot of friendships formed out of that experience. And it was something that I wasn't preparing to do or lead or engage with or something. It was just like, hey, we're going to do this. Next thing you know, we shared a lot of our ideas and experiences with one another that to this very day are, I consider friends. So something like that, a pub crawl, a movie crawl, something that is community and it, and it gets you out of that, because that's the other thing, that, that conference environment can be detrimental if you're only focused on presentation, presentation, God talk to this person, presentation, God talk to that person. If you're able to get out of that environment and just sort of reconnect with yourself and connect with new folks, I think the results are incredible. Yeah, and I think self-care at any conference becomes important. Uh, you know, ASA has a lot of things to take care of um, its conference goers that are worth noting. Um, this last year we had a quiet room, we had a parent's room. So if you if you do come with your children and you need um, a place to breastfeed a baby or a place to change a baby, we don't have um, child care available, but you know we do have a lot of things put into place so that there, if you do need a quiet space to be, um, if you, you know, need additional help, there's a, a table that if you are diabetic, for example, and, you know, need some help in that way, shape, or form. We have lots of things that are built in to the conference space that specifically geared towards self-care. That's not something you're going to get at a larger conference. And I think um, noting that those exist in the program and taking advantage of them should you need them is, uh, I think, paramount to making sure that you have an enjoy enjoyable conference experience as well and, and don't get too much into the conference grind um, that sometimes we can fall into where you just feel overwhelmed at the end and, and don't want to um, participate or come back. Yeah, in Greenville uh, last year, I remember I, I missed my children dearly, and I went in there and I knew some folks who had brought their children and said, hey, can I hang out with you? Can I play with them? And that half hour of me just being a parent and playing with the little buggers made me feel a lot better because I had hit that moment of, it was a form of home of homesickness, and I, and I needed that sense of home at that very moment, and the fact that there was a space available where I can play and be silly and have it be an acceptable social practice at that stage, at that moment, was so beneficial for me. Yeah, and that's one thing I will say for other grad students. Um, I, I had gone to AERA first, and you know I was expecting a, a big, huge conference. And, and AESA is not like that, as you are both saying. It is a much, much smaller, um, more in some ways familial space. 
and, and I think that is something for grad students to know. Just a few quick things before I, I let you all go, and thank you so much for your time. Uh, we truly appreciate it. Um, I know the grad students are really trying to kind of build in some of those things that you suggested, Dr. Ender, in terms of, while it won't be like a pub crawl or anything like that, we are working to um, maybe have like a sign-up um, where people can just eat lunch together if they want to. And, and as um, Dr. Wozlik was saying, there is time for that in the conference schedule. Um, and then I just want to reiterate what they both said about just talking to people that whose work um, you, you are inspired or motivated by, but also learn and talk to your other grad students because um, those are often the people that you will uh, be finding uh, are in similar situations at you, maybe writing partners, etc., and uh, you know are, are extremely knowledgeable as well. So, uh, with that being said, is there anything that you would like to add in closing about Baltimore or the conference or, or being a grad student? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> as much I, as, I, as I much think you for want. me just to remember, um, I I loved my time in Baltimore. I love the city. Um, I miss it dearly, and it's. When I say a city of neighborhoods, I mean it's a city of neighborhoods that has a lot of potential for you to find uh, who would be your people in that city, uh, whoever they may be, uh, and a lot of diversity of thought um, in different places of the city. So I think it's worth taking a moment to do a Google search and figure out, um, do I do I want to stay in Ann Harbor? Do I want to take a taxi out to Hamden? Do I um, you know, want to be in different parts of the city and explore what that has to offer, um, or is it something like I really want to be dedicated to this conference space and I want to see who's on the conference schedule, and they're not, you know, mutually exclusive, so you can obviously do um, as you need to, but really enjoy the city uh, for what it's worth. I know that Baltimore has gotten some bad press in the past um, at the national level, but it's really, I don't think it represents the um, diversity of people that are there, so just enjoy it. Yeah, I can only echo what Dr. Walford said about Baltimore. There are a lot of great people that are doing very important work that are frankly not getting the publicity for it. And so if, if I'm always one who will advocate, get away from the conference, find some time for yourself, find some time for your community, maybe do a, a, a derivative if you want to borrow some some obscure French philosopher term here. Just, just get, get, just let 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 the moment, let the let the energies of the city guide you and, and, and engage with it in ways that you may not expect it to. Fantastic. Um, I truly appreciate y'all taking a little bit of time out of your busy schedule to hopefully make uh, grad students and anybody else feel welcome um, and a little bit more comfortable about coming to the conference. That will wrap up a special annual meeting preview episode of the GSC, Graduate Student Coalition Podcast. I want to once again thank Dr. Wozlik and Ender for taking a few minutes of their time to help us prepare for the meeting. A final plug for folks heading to Baltimore, please reach out if you want to be on the podcast to talk through any papers that you are presenting or even ideas that you are working through. We would love to record a few episodes in vivo or live on location, Uh, so just let us know. Until Baltimore, have a great day wherever you are.